The text for this morning's sermon is taken from the opening verses of chapter 12, immediately following the verses we just read together. And we'll stop not at verse 3, as it says on the board, but at verse 2. So read the first two verses together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thus far, God's word. Beloved in Christ the Lord, I wonder if you've ever wandered through a church cemetery. It used to be that buildings like this would have been surrounded by the graves and the gravestones of the church members who had gone on before, who had been promoted to glory. Parish churches would have a cemetery surrounding the walls, and in fact many of the old cathedrals in Europe would even have the gravestones on the very floors in which the people gathered to worship. It's a thing of the past. It's something of a shame because that picture of the church in the middle of the graveyard is a powerful one. It sends a powerful message too. A powerful message to a dying world. You see, the world looks at death and at dying as something to be blocked out and shut out and ignored. It's a reminder of their mortality a reminder also of the futility of their existence. And so they're far from interested in spending, say, one day a week, as we do, reminded by these pictures of death and dying. But for the Christian, for the Christian, this picture of the church in the graveyard is much different. Yes, it reminds us of of death as the final enemy and of the frailty of life. But it's also a much more beautiful picture than that. Because the church graveyard is filled with hope. Each tombstone is a testimony to the hope that we have. The body lies there decaying. But the person who was, who was once on this earth is not dead, but is still alive. And so the picture of the church in the graveyard is a picture of the communion of saints. A fellowship that's not bound by time or space. It transcends also this earthly reality in which we live. While we're here, still clothed in our earthly bodies, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, even now as we worship together, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And these witnesses are not dead, but they are alive. And they testify also to the hope that we have and the prize to which we have been called. That's the reality that the author of Hebrews testifies to today, this morning in the text that we read. And he draws on this picture of this cloud of saints surrounding us to encourage us to persist in this life. He draws a striking picture where believers on this earth, we ourselves and the audience he was addressing, are engaged in a foot race, an athletics competition. And as we run this race of faith, We're surrounded by witnesses, 
surrounded by spectators who have run the race before us, who have reached the finish line, and who serve as encouragement, who serve as examples, but also serve to point us away from themselves to the object of their faith, to Jesus Christ. As we run our race, it's on Jesus Christ that we fix our eyes. That's the message of the gospel this morning. Run the race of faith by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Run the race of faith by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And we'll see the spectators to the race, the struggle in the race, and the strategy for the race. First then, the spectators to this race. So you're to imagine then an athletics competition, specifically a foot race. In the ancient world, just like today, sports was a big deal. And the foot race was actually the headline event of the ancient Olympic Games. Now the racers would take their marks in the stadium, surrounded by spectators who were there to cheer them on, to encourage them. And these spectators are part of this picture that the author of Hebrews is trying to draw. And he uses this picture of the foot race to encourage us in our own life of faith, describing to us that our life of faith is like a foot race. Now the author of Hebrews has just finished this famous chapter. I'm sure you've read it many times, what some people call the Faith Hall of Fame. And it's these men and women we read about, and the ones in the preceding part of the chapter as well, who form this cloud of witnesses. They're the ones who have run the race already. They're the ones who have reached the finish line. And now they're waiting for us to join them. Waiting for us also to finish the race. They're spectators. They're watching. But they're much more than that too. They're witnesses. And witnesses not in the sense of witnessing something, just watching, looking on. But witnesses more in the sense of a, of a court case. They're testifying to something. They stand there, they surround us as those who are testifying to something. Now what is that? What are they testifying to? They're testifying to the power of faith, to be sure. But especially to the power of God's promises. And to the reality also of his fulfillment of these promises. Faith, we read at the beginning of chapter 11, is being sure of what we hope for. And certain of what we do not see. That is, faith looks to the future with confidence and trust. The saints who have gone on before us, men and women like Moses and Rahab and Noah, have run the race of faith by looking to the future, by fixing their eyes firmly on what was to come, on the promises that God had given them. And so Noah. Noah was warned about a coming flood. And he built an ark, even though the land around him remained dry and dusty. You could say there was no rain in the forecast, but Noah built an ark. His faith held on to the promises of God, also the promise of coming judgment. And so he was saved through the waters of the flood. Abraham, too, was told to leave his place in the imperial city of Ur, a city of wealth, and power, and to go to a land he didn't know, to take a journey that was difficult and dangerous and long and tiring, to reach a destination that he had no idea about. He had faith 
in the promises of God. He trusted when God said, you will have a land of your own. He held on to that promise because he knew who God was. And when God promised also that he would have a great nation, even though Sarah was barren, unable to have children, he trusted in the promises of God. He had faith in the reality of what God was telling him. By faith, Moses' parents, too, when they saw this child, recognized that he was a special child, that God also had a different future for him in store. And so they hid him from the Pharaoh. Moses himself, too, although he grew up in the palace surrounded by treasures beyond imagining, earthly, earthly wealth beyond compare, he chose to be identified with the people of God instead of these pagan kings. He chose to forsake all this earthly wealth and treasure for the sake of what was invisible. It was by faith, by a firm confidence and a sure knowledge in the promises of God and the reality of his power also in fulfilling these promises that men and women shut the mouths of lions. Men and women quenched the fire of flames. They escaped the sword. But they don't, didn't only escape. They also faced torture, flogging, imprisonment, death. They were stoned, sawn in two, put to death by the sword. The world was not worthy of them, the, le- the author of Hebrews says. All of these saints lived by faith and not by sight. They refused to let present difficulties, present circumstances distract them from the reality of what God was preparing for them. And that the promises that God gave were true and certain, even when their fulfillment lay in the distant future. They held on to the reality of his promises, even though none of them received what had been promised. These saints now surround us as witnesses to the power of this faith. But much more than that, they also surround us as witnesses to the power of God in fulfilling his promises and being faithful also to the promises he gives to his people. For although they did not receive what was promised, we know that what was promised to them was in the fullness of time received. What was invisible to Moses, the invisible one, became visible when the child of the promise was born. In Jesus Christ, these saints, although they did not see him, gained entrance into a reality that was far beyond any earthly treasures, far beyond any momentary glory or honor. And their faith was rewarded with sight. When the Son of God himself came into human history, and bore the weight of God's wrath against our sins. Now, as we run our own race of faith, as we live out our own lives of faith here and now, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And they stand here as shining examples of the power of faith in facing even the most unimaginable suffering, unimaginable circumstances and trials in this life. But more than that, they direct our attention to the object of their faith. They direct their attention to to God himself. Now God, as well, has in store for us 
Just like he had in store for Abraham and Moses, something beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. He's busy here in Elora. He's busy throughout this world, gathering in the elect, taking care of his people, building his church, until the fullness of his kingdom is here, until all of the saints have been gathered in. We too are looking forward to that city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You find this difficult to imagine, hard to grasp, hard to hold on to, or do you doubt the promises of God that he does have a glorious future for you, that there is hope? Consider the cloud of witnesses. Consider the cloud that is surrounding us even now as we worship together. Take a walk through the faith hall of fame and see that God is true to his promises. That those who fix their eyes on him are not disappointed. As we run the race of faith, we can look around us at these spectators to our own race and see that this race is worth running. What has been promised at the finish line is a reality. And we will receive the strength and the endurance to run. We will join this cloud of witnesses ourselves if we run in faith. But then we need to keep running. We see that it's going to be a struggle as well in our second point. The witnesses, this cloud of witnesses also testifies to the fact that this is not going to be an easy race. Jeers, torture, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, getting sawn in two, going about in sheepskins, goatskins, wandering in deserts, mountains and caves and holes in the ground. The race will be a struggle. And so we're also called, as we run this race, to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. That's what the author tells us as well. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. It's only going to be possible to finish this race if we run with single-minded focus. Now, when the ancient runners would come to their stands in the stadium they would enter the stadium dressed in long flowing robes but as soon as they took their marks they'd shed these robes and they'd run the race with virtually nothing on they had to be as aerodynamic and as light as possible so they could run the race as best as possible that's the picture we're to imagine here anything that we could call that robe that's going to tangle us up slow us down must be thrown off Anything that affects our ability to run the race needs to be cast aside. That may include things that in and of themselves are not wrong or bad. And so in that sense, each of us might have different weights to throw off. We need to consider for ourselves, what is it that's holding me back in my race of faith? What's a burden for one runner is not going to be a burden for the other runner. For some of you, To give an example, perhaps it might be wealth. There's nothing wrong with financial success. Of course not. It's a blessing from God on our labors. But when obsession with wealth, or obsession with what wealth can buy, takes us away from our focus on the race, then we need to shed that weight. Then we need to refocus, get rid of the entanglements, get rid of what's hindering us, and focus again single-mindedly, on the goal. 
For others, perhaps it's a hobby that distracts you in your life of faith. And there's nothing wrong with hobbies in and of themselves. In fact, they're very good for us. But when our hobbies distract us from our race of faith, then we need to get rid of them or dial them back. Does your hobby bring glory to God? Does it deepen your relationship with God? No. Then it might just be a distraction that you need to get rid of. In our day, there's so much that's trying to distract us from this race of faith. There's a lot of competition for our attention. Is television, or social media, or lack of sleep preventing you from focusing on the race? Then get rid of the distractions. Get rid of the distractions and take up what's going to make you an excellent runner. Take up the spiritual disciplines, the biblical strategy. Return to the simple biblical formula. What is it? Read your Bible. Pray continuously and make use of the ordinary means that God has given. This weekly gathering of believers, the preaching of the word, the regular communion at God's table. These are the things that are going to give you the long, lean muscles of a marathon runner. Others may not be hampered by these things, but be hampered by things like fear, anxiety, worry. It may be that the author of Hebrews is thinking of this in particular. You see, the the audience of this letter were mostly Jewish Christians, new to the faith. They lived in the Roman Empire, which wasn't terribly sympathetic always to Jewish Christians. While they weren't necessarily always physically persecuted, there were social and economic pressures that they had to face in the cities and the societies in which they lived. And so they might be tempted to throw in the towel and say, it's just not worth it. Why is life so difficult? If God's the creator of everything, if he's the sustainer of everything, if he's my Lord, then why is life so difficult? And if Christ is the king of the universe, then why am I, as citizen of his kingdom, experiencing such difficulties in this life? Now, these feelings and emotions can easily overwhelm us because the race of faith isn't a walk in the park. And sometimes it seems like the people who have dropped out of the race or the people who are never enlisted in the race to begin with have it so much easier. Life is so much more simple for them. Then our text this morning encourages us to refocus again on the race ahead of us, to be encouraged again by this cloud of witnesses as well, by the reality that these promises will be fulfilled that there is a future hope and a future glory. And so we have to throw off these burdens. But it's not just human weakness that slows us down and holds us back. It's also sin that trips us up and entangles us. The author writes, sin which clings so closely. It's as though sin is that, that fancy robe that we're supposed to get rid of at the beginning of the race and you're trying to run, and it's wrapping around your ankles and tangling you up, and you just you can't run properly. Sin distracts us from the prize. It sidelines us, causes our feet to wander off the path. Sin stands between us and the finish line. 
So that means fighting against sin. That means fighting against our sinful inclinations and temptations. That means confessing sin when it's being committed. That means seeking forgiveness from God, but also seeking reconciliation among each other when we sin against each other, restoring our own relationships. Because when we're wrapped up in sin, and when we have not laid aside the burden of guilt, we can't run freely and unimpeded. We have to throw off everything that hinders and entangles us and distracts us from the race because only then can we run with perseverance and with endurance. It's not an easy race. There are steep mountains and there are deep valleys. There's extreme heat and there's severe cold. But the race has been marked out for us and God calls us to run this race. There's no shortcuts. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. God calls us to run this race with perseverance, surrounded by the cloud of those who have run the race before us, who testify that it can be run, that it can be finished, and that the prize also is worth the effort. But how? How are we going to do this? How could we ever accomplish this? You might be listening right now and thinking, so I just need to try harder? I just need to focus better? Get rid of obstacles? Throw off weights? Just keep running? But I can't. I'm tired. And I can't focus. I can't do it myself. And if we were to stop here, and if we're the the text were to stop here too, you would have reason to despair. It would be like somebody who comes alongside the faltering marathon runner and says, you really need to drink more water, but doesn't offer him anything. But thankfully, our God is not like that. Our Heavenly Father doesn't leave us alone in the race. He also presents us with a strategy for finishing the race successfully. That's our final final point, the strategy for this race. It's a simple one. Are you listening? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Imagine again you're running a race. Can you picture it? You're running down a track, and you're tending to focus on the bumps right in front of you, on the hurdles that are coming your way. The author of Hebrews is telling you, just lift your eyes. Look up to the horizon. What do you see? Jesus is running ahead of you. You're not alone on the track. If you just lift your eyes and fix your eyes on Jesus, he's there in front of you, running the race before you. You see, it was Jesus. Jesus Christ who was the object of the faith of those witnesses who surround us even now. Although they didn't know him, although they did not see him, he was the one on whom they had their eyes fixed. He was the one who had been promised. He was the reality of what they had been promised by their Heavenly Father. This Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We have received 
what was promised. He's the founder of our faith in the sense of being the trailblazer, the pathfinder, the one who goes before us, the one who has already obtained the victory. You see, he ran the race, and what he had his eyes fixed on was the joy that was before him. That's what the author of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was that joy? What did he have his eyes fixed on? The salvation of your souls. The salvation of your soul and your soul and my soul. That's what Jesus had his eyes fixed on as he ran the race. And so he made it through this earthly life as well. He made it through earthly sufferings, earthly difficulties, the temptations as well that come with the existence in this, on this earth. He endured the cross. Even the cross enduring its shame. Crucifixion. One of the most brutal deaths, but also the most shameful death in the ancient world. Suspended between God and man, rejected by God and man. The deepest shame. And Christ endured it because he had his eyes fixed on the joy of the salvation of your souls. And so that symbol of shame, the cross, became an entrance into a new reality for all those who fix their eyes now on Jesus. So that path, the trail has been blazed. The race is marked out for us too. But he's more than that even. He's not just the founder in the sense of being the pathfinder, the trailblazer of our faith. He's the founder in the sense of being the source of our faith. He's gone on to be seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he's not done his work there. He looks down on us as we run the race. He's run it before us, but he's also there looking down on us, strengthening us by his spirit. Our faith is is not our own. It's not something that we come up with or that we work in our hearts. Christ is looking down on us from above. He's the one who's strengthening our weak knees, straightening our crooked backs. He gives us the strength to fix our eyes on him. So fix your eyes on Jesus. What's more, we don't need to dig deeply in ourselves to find the endurance to make it across the finish line. We don't need to find the finishing power in our own strength. He's the perfecter of our faith. Perfecter. He's the one who has begun his work in us and he will perfect it in us as well. He does not start something and then not finish it. And so if he's begun his work in you and he has, then he will also finish it. He will carry it out to completion. He will see you cross the finish line. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus ran the race for you. He was forsaken by God. He was forsaken by sinful man. Forsaken by the very people he came to save. But this moment of suffering and pain of God and man forsakenness sealed the victory for you and I. And so, when you're running and you get a cramp, when you're running out of breath, 
or if the obstacles in your path just seem too big and too great for you to handle, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you grow tired of facing difficulties in this life, when you lose heart and despair of ever finishing this race, fix your eyes on Jesus. He ran the race for you. He experienced sufferings and struggles in this life for you. He has won the victory already for all of you. Now you need to fix your eyes on him in faith, and he will bring you across the finish line. You will receive the crown of glory. Amen.